So when did you meet your wife? I met Margie uh, my senior year at BYU. I was dating Alyssa Hatch, who was Orrin Hatch's daughter. I was dating a few other girls. Um, I, I knew I had to get married by the time I, I graduated, so I had about four or five girls I was dating in parallel. And Margie, uh, she, she, she ran cross-country for BYU. Uh, but what I loved most about her, I met her in Family Home Evening uh, in our ward, but what I loved most about her was her room. Her room uh, was beautifully decorated. She had curtains and a beautiful bedspread and candles, and and uh, it was lit nicely. But most importantly, I looked at her bookshelf, and she had books on philosophy and history and uh, thinking books. And she was a philosophy minor and an English lit major, all the classics. And uh, I just fell in love with Margie and uh, and her room and and her. And so uh, we got we uh, got engaged. And as I graduated from BYU. In 1993, we got married in the D.C. Temple, uh, and that was the start of our marriage. Great. How would you uh, characterize her uh, position towards the church? That's really interesting now because that's another reason I'm super grateful. I knew that I was going to be struggling with things later on in my life. I just had that instinct. And so what I I wanted to marry someone who I, I, I felt like uh, was going to be able to be supportive of me when I went through the challenges that I went through. And so, uh, and that's exactly what I got in Margie. She was a convert. Her parents converted to the church in the late 70s. Uh, and even though she was um, a good girl and and, and behaved in a, in, a, in a Mormonly acceptable way, I could tell she wasn't a traditional thinker. She was raised back east in Florida and Ohio and D.C., and she wasn't of the Utah mindset. And I felt like if I ever did go through serious challenges, that Margie wouldn't be there to judge or criticize me, but that she would be supportive of me. So, How aware was Margie of the sort of gaping hole you describe uh, in, in your feelings towards the church and about your religion? Uh, we didn't talk extensively about it. I, uh, the, the most that we got into it was, was me talking to her about my mission experience. And she could relate because she ran cross-country for BYU and she had a coach there that, that um, behaved in a real abusive manner at, at BYU. Uh, girls, many of, the, many of the runners there were anorexic or bulimic because of the way that he had treated them, even though they were national champions or always came in second or third in the nation. And she ended up uh, resigning out of principle her senior year uh, because of the way that, that this coach treated a lot of the girls. And so... Um, uh, we related on that that notion of standing up for what's right, of living on principle, uh, but we didn't talk extensively about the church, uh, so uh, that was something that we we dealt with later. Okay, so you start off a new family with Margie, and you're a little distressed, but you found some ways to cope with uh, some of the things that you know. You, I guess you would call them imperfections. And um, and Margie is, uh, you know, I guess pretty much a, a traditional um, Mormon girl, but is liberally inclined, you might say. Yeah, yeah, I think you could. She, she wasn't traditional. Growing up back east, the church wasn't the most important thing in her life. Mm. Um, so she listened to, to cool music. She read the classics. She was a thinker. She was a deep thinker. 
and 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 to be honest, I didn't date many deep thinkers, and that's probably what I love most about her. She was a deep thinker. Um, she I wouldn't call her an intellectual, but she's extremely smart. She didn't like the uh, the gameplay of you know uh, of jockeying for intellectual supremacy, but she liked to learn and to study and to think deeply and to uh, act courageously. And to be honest, that wasn't uh, my my experience dating most of the girls that I dated. So, so I, I guess I correct a little bit of that. But mm. but she but she, you know, went to church and and she wanted to get married in the temple and and she uh, had had a testimony. And so, you know, I think she would have passed as a as a good Mormon girl, but I wouldn't have called her traditional. And and how orthodox were the two of you when you first started out? Uh, that that was really interesting because I. I tried to pull the priesthood hierarchy, make me lunches when I go to work, and uh, you know I'm the priesthood leader sort of thing early on, and that just didn't fly with her at all. So she very early on put me in my place uh, and said, "This is going to be an egalitarian marriage. You know, we're going to be co- we're going to be partners. We're going to walk side by side." And I, I, I grew up in a bit of a patriarchal home. My dad was an authority figure. He'd served in the military. He was very forceful in how he communicated, and um, that was kind of a shock to me, frankly. <laughs> Difficult? Uh, yeah. Our marriage for the first seven years was sheer hell, to be honest. Um, we uh, we had a few major issues we had to get under control. Uh, finances was a huge issue because she had grown up wealthy. I had grown up uh, with a bankrupt you know, financial situation, so I was a penny pincher. She had no idea what it meant to keep a budget or to manage finances or what compound interest was, etc. So we had a few major battles. One was getting finances under control so we wouldn't go into debt. One was balancing her family's desire to be intimately involved in our lives with uh, with um, our, our need to be an independent couple. And... Um, uh, you know, and just learning how to communicate. But we, we fought ferociously for seven straight years. Marriage was hell, and it was a huge adjustment that uh, I, I can't believe we made it through. Um, but marriage was very hard those first several years. Well, what made the difference after seven years? Oh, well, um, well, this is sort of a, I wasn't expecting you to ask this, but um, when I was at Microsoft, I, I sort of rose really quickly in the ranks, was promoted several times in a very few amount of years, and became a director after a couple of years there, and started developing a real following uh, of salespeople who used the products that I created to help them sell stuff to the workforce. And um, at a conference um, in Seattle, where all the Microsoft salespeople had come, uh, there was a really attractive young lady who uh, who caught my eye, but who also uh, started making eyes at me. And uh, before I knew it, we were talking after an event, and then we were talking that evening. And before I knew it, uh, by the end of the night, it was clear that if I wanted to take that relationship far, I could have. And she made that clear. And, um, you know, I had made the commitment that I was never going to cheat on Margie. And... Uh, uh, that you know that wasn't even going to be an option, but here I stood uh, with a sincere desire to do it, and that was a real shock for me because I never expected that I would even have that inkling, uh, but I did. 
but I didn't I didn't cheat on Margie. I told I went home and told Margie everything, but I wanted to, and it was because we just weren't getting along. Um, but I'm really grateful that I just told her how I was feeling. I, I wasn't using it to manipulate her. I wasn't trying to use that as a device, but I we were we were fighting so often and so fiercely and so ferociously that uh, I just I was seeking love and acceptance elsewhere. But by being really open and honest with Margie and telling her everything, it was really hard for the first couple of years for her to still trust me. After admitting to her, I really wanted to cheat on her. Um, but I, I do think that in some way that motivated her to try and um, to maybe uh, change the way she was behaving in some ways, and it motivated me to be a little bit more recommitted. And that did represent a real turning point in our marriage, though I don't know what that has to do with Mormonism, but... You ask, so sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. Well, let me let me take a step back then um, and talk about those first seven years. You were um, having some difficulty, and you, you were both active in the church. So, were you temple recommend holders? Were you having the family home evening? Were you having the traditional sort of behavioral things you would attribute to uh, Orthodox Mormon life? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. We we did our best. Um, Margie and I have always uh, attended church regularly. We've we've held our our callings and tried to serve faithfully in them. Uh, we've always remained temple worthy. We've always paid our tithing. Uh, I wouldn't say we were strong temple goers because I don't think neither she nor I uh, had a great uh, experience. I, I actually went through the temple before the changes were made around 1990. So uh, not only was I shocked by by the temple experiences that I had that I viewed as barbaric uh, at the time, all, all the Masonic stuff that they've taken out now, but also after they made the changes, I was shocked that the Lord's holy ceremony could be changed. So I don't know what was worse for my testimony. The Masonic you know, artifacts or the fact that, that God's temple ceremony could be changed. So I don't think Margie was crazy about the temple either. So I wouldn't say we were heavy temple goers. Uh, we tried to read the scriptures regularly uh, and, and to stay spiritually minded. We went to church regularly. As soon as our kids were born, we would we would sing hymns with them regularly. And we've always, uh, each morning, started the morning out with a song and a spiritual thought and then a prayer. We did that early on, and we still do that to this day. Every morning before the kids uh, leave for school, we have a spiritual thought and we sing hymns and we we kneel in prayer. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't say we were perfect Mormons, but uh, and we've also always had family home evening as a family. So even in those early years, we've uh, I think we've we've been good, devout, uh, committed Mormons. Yeah. Okay, so we're in Seattle. Yeah, walk me through a little bit uh, of your experience in the church up there. Yeah, so just to, just to backtrack a bit, uh, we moved from from DC to Dallas. I worked for a year at a company called Bain, which was Mitt Romney's uh, consulting firm that he became famous for before he left and did the stuff with the Salt Lake Olympics and his political stuff. Worked there a year. Worked at Arthur Anderson in Chicago for a year. Um, uh, uh, two years. I worked Arthur Anderson a year, and then I became a, a computer programmer. And then uh, we left Chicago once I could make really good money as a computer guy, moved to Salt Lake City. I was a consultant to the Mormon Church for a year, which was very interesting. I actually uh, worked on a general authority candidate tracking system 
while I was at the church, uh, in addition to helping them with uh, a lot of their year 2000 initiatives. Mm. So that was fun. Uh, but v- eventually Microsoft hired me away, and I, and I went to work at Microsoft. And so you know who the next general authorities are going to be. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I may, but I can't tell you. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, probably the most, the most uh, formative thing that happened to, to us in, in Seattle, other than this experience I just told you about, was when I was called to be a seminary teacher. And uh, I, I, was teaching, uh, uh, I was teaching Sunday school to the 16 and 17-year-olds, and I was teaching about D&C and, and church history, and it was just really uh, inspiring. I felt like I was doing a really good job teaching them, and I turned to them. One of, the, one of them was a daughter of the bishop. The other was a daughter of the first counselor. And I said, you know, you know, you guys enjoying this lesson? They're like, yeah. You know, you guys, you know, think that I'm a good teacher? And they're like, yeah. I said, you should, you should go tell your dads to call me as a seminary teacher. And sure enough, within a week, they called me to teach seminary. And uh, first year was Book of Mormon, and I got through that okay. Uh, but uh, the second year was Doctrine and Covenants. And I, I really wanted to be a good seminary teacher. But I never felt like I knew church history very well. So uh, I started reading the Seminary and Institute manuals for Doctrine and Covenants and church history. And you know, I just underlined all sorts of stuff and started asking a lot of questions. So I learned about Leonard Arrington and the whole church history years in the, in the, in the 70s and early 80s. So I started reading Leonard Arrington. And I, a lot of my questions got answered, but I had a few more questions. So then I started reading, you know, Sunstone and Dialogue and, and Bushman and other more intellectual uh, church historians. And I had more questions. And then finally I started reading Michael Quinn and eventually Fawn Brody. And before you knew it, uh, as I was teaching these seminary students church history and the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, my entire testimony and, and worldview of the church was disassembling before my eyes and before my family's eyes. Because I started reading about peepstones, I started reading about uh, witnesses who, uh, you know, didn't necessarily experience uh, what I thought they'd experienced in the way I thought they'd experienced it. I read about alternative methods for uh, translating the Book of Mormon. I learned about uh, multiple versions of the of the first uh, vision. I learned about polygamy. I learned about blacks. I learned about the general discourses, and all the stuff that I had accepted the pat answers for who I had accepted the correlated whitewashed view of our church history, all of a sudden all my questions started getting answered, but they were answered in the direction uh, that that wasn't necessarily faith-affirming. And the real uh, curious thing about this whole experience was that I was sharing it with my seminary students as I was experiencing it. And since I was trying to read apologetic stuff as I was reading the tough stuff, I would teach my seminary students about Peepstones and Joseph Smith. I would teach them about you know, Nauvoo and Carthage and what really happened at Carthage jail. And uh, it was an absolutely very dark time for me because I wasn't sure I believed this stuff. I wasn't sure I felt right about it, but I was in a position where I needed to teach these students uh, more and I didn't want them to be uh, waiting 30 or 40 years for them to learn this stuff as well. So I felt like, okay, I'll learn this stuff I'll reconcile it spiritually and I'll teach it to them so that they get this stuff in high school so that they're even more better prepared. Uh, but but that went over like a lead balloon. These kids would go home and tell their parents, I learned about polygamy today. I learned about peepstones today. 
And all of a sudden, you know, the CES were sending people to come listen to my presentations. You know, the, the bishop, you know, the bishop was saying, you know, are you okay? What are you doing? The stake president was, was starting to get involved. And uh, kids were starting to complain about me to their bishops. And it was this horrible time where I felt like I needed to be honest. I was learning all the stuff that was overwhelming me. I was trying to um, piece through it, through the teaching of it to these students. And it was overwhelming the students. It was overwhelming me. And and pretty much uh, it, it led to the complete disassembly of my testimony. So would you say this disassembly was more poignant now than it was at the end of your mission? Yeah, it was thorough and complete. It culminated literally in me turning to Margie and saying, I think we should leave the church. Um, and what was her response? Well, initially it was crying in tears. Uh, but then I I shared with her the stuff that I had learned and read. And she wasn't a Pat Molly Mormon sort of person. So Was she aware of those issues? No, she wasn't aware of any of it. But as I as I shared with her all the things that I had learned about Joseph Smith, about the 33 wives, about the polyandry, about Brigham Young, about his statements in the journal discourses, as I'm sharing these things all with her, she's repulsed and disgusted um, and very quickly went from, I can't believe you're doing this to, all right, I'll go where you want me to go, you know. Uh, but but it, was, uh, it, it was interesting because um, a real uh, moment of coincidence was that when Margie was growing up in Florida in high school, she had a, a seminary teacher that was absolutely seminal in helping her uh, stay in the church. Margie suffered from eating disorders in high school. Uh, she didn't get along with her mom super well. And this uh, seminary teacher, Ed Gardner, was absolutely a phenomenal influence in loving Margie and supporting Margie and making her feel special and in helping her um, stay in the church. Uh, well, as I was uh, getting into my Google phase, uh, as I was trying to reconcile this history, what do you know it, but I stumbled upon uh, a post-Mormon website that had a testimony from a man named Ed Gardner. Hmm. And I, I said, hey, Margie, uh, I think it's Ed. It's either Ed or Bill Gardner. They're brothers, and, and both of them are post-Mormons. But it was very, uh, it was just serendipitous because at the time I was trying to sell Margie on why the church wasn't what I thought it was. I stumbled upon this person who was so formative in her life. He had shared his entire testimony of how he became a seminary institute teacher, rose in levels of church, but at the same time had a father who was a bishop who sexually molested his own children. Oh. So the, the father bishop molested his grandchildren, which was Margie Seminary Teacher's children, which led to them um, going to BYU and trying to reconcile things. He taught religion at BYU. He actually counseled us before we got married during one counseling session while we were at BYU, but ultimately he left the church shared his testimony on the internet. And when Margie read that, that Ed Gardner had left the church, that was an important uh, b block for her as well. So anyway, uh, so yeah. So how long did the whole process take to go from, you know, basically a believing committed Mormon to being prepared to leave the church? It was about a year and a half. Uh, it was about a year and a half. And uh, during this time, uh, even during my Book of Mormon years, it was a really interesting dynamic because, and y you were a part of this, I... As I started studying things more deeply and having questions, I would go to my elders quorum and try and get an answer. And it, you know, no one would ever want to talk about any of these issues. So I'd go to my elders quorum presidency, and none of them would want to talk about it. And I'd try and go to my friends. So there was this uh, LDS alias at Microsoft 
for all the members of Microsoft that were also LDS. And I would just start bombing this alias with questions and uh, issues, trying to find anyone who I could talk to. And, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe even a thousand Mormons at Microsoft, I don't know. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was not too long before I was asked to stop spamming this LDS alias with uh, questions about controversial Mormon issues. Mm -hmm. So we created a second alias. It was like Shadow LDS or yeah. something like that, mm -hmm. where the conversation started uh, getting more and more in-depth. We started having this f furious, raging debates between Microsofties uh, about Mormon issues, some of them fundamentalists, some of them like you, who are a little more liberal and open-minded and knowledgeable. And uh, that even spun out of control to where we had to take that offline and have our own private alias where like 20 of us who were left on Yahoo started, uh, it was called LDS Tough Topics, LDS TT. And, and so through about a year and a half, I had a, a few close Microsoft buddies, about 20 of them that we could have these conversations with. But also I started getting up on the internet and Googling and I discovered ex-Mormon, post-Mormon, loyal liberal Mormon, uh, uh, New Order Mormon, all these websites where these uh, conversations were being held ad nauseum. And it just became this baptism by fire immersion mm -hmm. of all the controversial issues. And maybe you remember mm -hmm. some of those threads and conversations. You were an important support to me at that point, by the mm -hmm. way. Oh, thanks. You, and you were to me as well. Those were the good old days. Yeah, good old <laughs> days. I miss them. Yeah. Okay. So it was about a year and a half, uh, but it was a very tumultuous year. I was angry. I was obsessed. Every single free moment that I had, I would be on the internet mm -hmm. writing these mean, vicious, angry, emotional threads, reading other people's posts, responding. So you were uh, a participant posting on these boards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Writing extensive threads, arguing with people, flaming people, getting flamed back, mm -hmm. reading Brody, reading Quinn. Uh, I was I was of ill temperament to my family. Uh, I was not uh, being the father that I should. I was not being the husband that I should. It was a, a it was a completely dark time in my life where my worldview was crumbling. I was obsessed with learning Mormon history and doctrine and having these engagements and debates. And uh, you know, uh, you you were there with me, but it was an overwhelmingly negative, dark, mm -hmm. hard time, and and uh, obsessive and overwhelming. Okay, so let's let's uh, during this time you were teaching seminary, and you started teaching outside the manual. Yeah, and you started getting audited for that. Yeah, and uh, you probably distressed a few kids. Yeah. So, what was the reaction uh, by your church leaders at that point? I was I was amazed at how supportive people were. the The seminary and institute guy was not cool. He would come and take notes and give me critiques after my lessons. He would tell me, please stop teaching anything that's outside the manual. I felt completely uh, chained and correlated and limited, and I felt like he had no idea what these issues were, why they were important. He had no empathy or understanding for me, and I felt like he was just a stiff suit trying to do his job. I had sympathy for him from his perspective, but he was in no way enlightened in, in my how I was feeling at the time or supportive. And I knew that he was complaining about me. Um, on the other hand, uh, the bishop that we had was exceptionally supportive. He was just like, hey, man, I'm here for you. I, I know some of these issues, and I just want you to be happy. Would it be better for you if we released you? If, we, if you don't want to be released, we'll let you stay in. Uh, 
you know, people, my bishop was absolutely supportive and, and made me, didn't make me feel bad at all. He's a good man. Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, Bishop yep. Thorpe. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Good guy. Yep. And even the, even the member of the, of the state presidency that was over seminary, he, he told me that it wasn't appropriate to bring up controversial issues, but he didn't make me feel demeaned or judged in any way. So I, I actually can't complain about how the non-CES people treated me. They were wonderful. So did you take him up on the offer to be released? Yeah, it actually was released mid 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 year during my second year of teaching and and that was a little bit weird for the students, but I think they were probably relieved <laughs> to have me gone. But yeah. that was a little bit embarrassing to just bow out mid year. Yeah. But I could not and I really regret cuz I signed a form saying I would only teach from the manual, but I couldn't only teach from the manual. It wasn't in me. I felt like I was purporting lies and I felt like I was whitewashing and doing these kids a disservice by not giving them the full real story. So even though I signed a form promising I would teach by the manual, I ended up not being able to do it. And, uh, and, and so I couldn't stay, but I couldn't leave. And eventually I left and it was embarrassing. And I felt like all the ward members were looking at me, wondering what was going on. And they probably didn't care, probably didn't have a second thought about it. But personally, it was it was it was kind of losing face and and a shameful thing to go through. Well, what was your calling after that? Uh, they called me into the the Cub Scouts, which was uh, probably a good thing. And for the next six months, or you know, a little less than a year, I, I served in Cub Scouts and I loved it. I was a Weebles leader. So somewhere along uh, the line here, you make a decision that you're going to pursue an academic career in Utah. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, through some friends and my mother-in-law and some other connections, I ended up uh, getting accepted into a PhD program at Utah State University. Uh, we had saved up enough money to be able to, you know, take care of our mortgage in a way that allowed us to not be so worried about how the future might uh, be in a small town. And uh, I got a cool job at a university doing really uh, interesting stuff. So moved to Logan, Utah, and um, that was about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. You, so bring us from the point where you moved to Logan, Utah, to today. Yeah. So, um, so when when I when I got here, I started learning about the internet, and uh, you know, I worked at Microsoft, and I never learned much about the internet while I was there. Uh, Microsoft was a, little, was a little slow coming to the internet, you could say, in some ways. But uh, so I started learning about uh, you know web stuff and then blogs and then podcasts and that's sort of the field that I'm in. It's called instructional technology. So uh, as I started learning about all these technologies, uh, I also had this dream to meet all these um, Sunstone and Dialogue folks because I, I should say that you know Margie and I looked at each other and asked whether we should leave the church, but we ended up not leaving the church. And I would have to say that one of the reasons we didn't leave the church is because I, I delved into the writings of Eugene England and Lowell Benyon and T. Edgar Lyon and, and many of the Sunstone and Dialogue folks, uh, kind of like the professors that had helped me out at BYU, but a lot of these uh, thoughtful, inspirational, devout men, Leonard Arrington, uh, I read their books, I read their essays, I read their works, I read Sunstone, I, lung, I read Dialogue, and they convinced me that there was a place for me in the Mormon church that thinking, believing people who knew all the history, who knew all the facts, could still find a way to contribute in a positive, productive way. That is what Leonard Arrington's life is a testimony of. That's how Eugene England lived. That's what Lowell Binion uh, uh, testified to until his dying day, along with T. Edgar Lyon. 
in spite of the fact that they were mistreated in many ways by, by the brethren. And so their essays and writings and Sunstone and Dialogue absolutely kept me in the church and gave me hope that there would be a place for me. So when I came to Logan and I started learning about technology and the Sunstone Symposium was coming up, I just had to go to the Sunstone Symposium and uh, meet these people, whoever I could meet, and 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 just bask in the beauty of, of that community and then find some way to even thank them for what they had given me. So I went to the Sunstone Symposium. Uh, I arranged with Dan Witherspoon, the editor, to give a little presentation to the board before I actually went to the Sunstone Symposium. While I was there, I met, uh, you know, I met uh, Grant Palmer. I met Greg Prince. I met uh, Levina Fielding Anderson. I met uh, Jan Ships, uh, Michael Quinn. It was an absolutely stunning, you know, like a rock star celebrity weekend where I could meet all these luminaries in Mormon history that had been um, that had been important pieces of helping me stay. Uh, within the church. And so not only was I able to meet all these people who I viewed as as Mormon celebrities, but also uh, I gave a presentation to the Sunstone Board. And I said, look, I've just been through this really traumatic time where I went through a huge crisis of faith and I didn't have your magazines or or journals handy. And I went to the internet. And while I was uh, going to the internet, you weren't there. You were not there for me, Sunstone and Dialogue. And so I got inundated by ex-Mormon and anti-Mormon stuff. And I almost left the church over it. And I'm here today to ask you why you don't have an internet presence. Why aren't you doing something to carry on the legacy of Lowell Benyon and Eugene England and T. Edgar Lyon, etc. So that uh, all these people who are flocking towards ex-Mormon websites can have a place to go to find a thoughtful faith that's reconcilable to help them stay in the church. And they basically, you know, Michael Smith took me up to this little room upstairs and on the spot he invited me to be a member of the board. And he said, you know, we don't know much about the internet, but if you want to come on and help make this happen, we would love to have you be a board member. And so it was then that I said, okay. And so (laughs) I, I figured out how to start a blog and then I figured out how to do a podcast. And I wanted to experiment myself before I, um, before I actually did it for them. So I think even leading up to uh, the the Sunstone Symposium, I started Mormon Stories. I started uh, uh, learning a little bit about it. And within a month or two, I had gotten my own Mormon Stories blog going. Because I had met Greg Prince at the Sunstone Symposium, I did a couple interviews with Greg Prince, got my feet wet a little bit, and then soon convinced Sunstone to do their own blog and podcast. And so um, it was really interesting because when I presented to Sunstone, my whole premise was uh, there are all these people who are falling out of the church and becoming ex-Mormons. And you need to be there to help save them, to keep them from falling out, just like you helped me. So my initial motivation, which has now changed, was to be a safety net to keep people from leaving the church. And that was my motivation for Mormon Stories and for Sunstone for the six months prior to about January 2006. And so everything that I did was around a thoughtful faith, was around um, being honest and open about the truth, but being faithful and encouraging and helping people find a way to reconcile that truth and then stay in the church. And so uh, that that took me through January. And I imagine you have a question that you might want to follow up on there. Which is, 
how did it change in January? So as I started, um, as I started doing these blogs and podcasts and people started listening, I realized that two things were happening. I was getting two types of emails. The first type of email was, John, thank you. I've been suffering in silence for 30 years. I have no one to talk to. I thought I was the only one in the church with these concerns. And your blogs and your podcasts give me hope. Not only that I'm not alone, but also that there are other people like me and that there's a place for me in this church. And I can tell you that to this day, I get one to two emails a week that bring tears to my eyes every time I read them. And I've kept every one. And, and those emails are from people all over the world, not just in Utah, all over the world, who say to me, I've been suffering in silence. I've been not able to talk to my wife. I haven't been able to talk to my family. I can't talk to any church leaders. I am so grateful for your honesty and your openness and your faithful approach to these issues. You've helped keep me in the church. So that was half of the emails I was getting. Unfortunately, I was getting another half. And the other halves were, wow, man, I didn't know this stuff. Dang. Dang, man, that polygamy thing. Whoa. Whoa, that Mason thing. Or, oh, journal discourses. Ugh. And all of a sudden, I was realizing that for every person that I was helping save and keep in the church, I was introducing another person to all these issues that they had never thought of or considered. And so uh, so I realized that um, if my motivation was purely to uh, keep people in the church, that I likely was going to be disappointed in the results because for every person that I helped save by talking openly and honestly about these issues, there were going to be other people who were going to decide to leave. And that that's when I just called a halt to my podcast. I kind of shut down my blog. And for several weeks, I... I reached this moment of crisis where I said, can I continue knowing that I may lead as many people out of the church as I, as I am um, going to help save? Uh, so that was, uh, that was my dilemma. But after that couple of weeks, you started everything back up. I did. I did. Uh, I got so many overwhelming emails from people saying, please don't stop. Please keep going. We love what you're doing. It's, you're providing such an important service, and that 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 alone wouldn't have been enough uh, to keep me going. Uh, but I but I just I just thought about it and I said, you know, I've been taught do what is right, let the consequences follow. I've been taught, oh, say what is truth, tis the fairest gem that the riches of men can produce. Um, I've been taught that that the that you know the gospel is true, the church is true, the truth will prevail that no unhallowed hand will stop the work from progressing. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around this notion of uh, having it be righteous that silence and hiding things and obfuscation was in the end going to be something that God himself would approve of and and, and sanction. Uh, I, I really have come to believe that many of the perversions in this life stem from people who are not able to talk openly and honestly about things they're feeling, be it religious or otherwise. And so what they do is they split their soul into two parts. They have the private hidden part where they live and think um, and act a certain way in private, in secret. And in a, and in a second part of their life, they act in a public way 
uh, that's different from how they are privately. And I believe that many of the perversions and evils and sadness and depression in this world stem from people having to hide and cover up uh, their innermost feelings and thoughts for fear of what people externally are going to think or feel or judge them about. I feel that that's, that's unhealthy and wrong. And so, uh, you know, I just had to go with that instinct that in the end, truth and openness and honesty clean. It, it's the ult- ultimate antiseptic. And, and so it, basically, if I had to believe that, that for the church and for my testimony to be successful, that I had to be silent and secretive and quiet and obfuscating and correlated, that would have been the death of my optimism, my hope, my faith, and my belief. And so I, I, I decided that I had to just go for openness and honesty and candor and, and that somehow there'd be pain, there'd be consequences, maybe even consequences to me, but in the end, the truth and righteousness and goodness and openness and dialogue would, would ultimately be uh, what would save the day. Okay. Well, let me play devil's advocate to that uh, for a minute here. Some might say, you know, John, maybe you're right, that uh, you really need to have openness and candor about these topics. And and at, at the end, you know, this is really going to help advance the cause. But is that really your decision to make? Because it seems that the church has made a decision uh, to correlate the materials and to um, leave out some of the details that you were uh, sharing with your seminary class, for example. So how do you reconcile that it seems that, you know, at least appears to you that maybe the church is, um, you know, being very careful about disclosure of its information, and uh, you are not? The way the church is run today, and I don't mean this to disparage the brethren, but the way the church is run today, very top-down, very authoritative, very autocratic, I can easily see how members would get to the point where they stopped seeing the church as their church. But as I dug deep into my soul to see what I wanted to do and, and whether I wanted to leave and how I wanted to act, the the screaming feeling within me uh, shouted to my soul saying, this is your church too, John. This is not their church. You're as much a Mormon as they are. You're as much a member of the church as they are. And and your voice doesn't need to be silenced. You have just as much of a right to stand up and share your feelings and tell your stories, and most importantly, to let other people tell their stories as anyone else does to give their policy. I haven't sought to criticize the brethren. I haven't even taught to instruct the brethren. You'll notice that never has my intent actually been to, to change the church itself or the church's policies, uh, really, although that'd be a nice side effect in some instances in my personal opinion. But my issue has never been with the church. I have only sympathy for the brethren. And I can talk to you all about my little position on why I I love the brethren and think they're wonderful and only feel sorry for the position they're in and have respect for them. But my, my concern is with the people. I see too much pain. I see our gay brothers and sisters who have no idea what their place is in the church and the only recourse they see is leaving. I see people who struggle about the church history, who who are deeply silenced and sad 
uh, about these things they can't understand. And they have literally nowhere to go to talk to people about how to reconcile these issues. I see people struggling with depression, uh, women struggling with depression. Utah leads the nation in suicides of, of young boys between the ages of 15 and 24. I see a lot of sadness and depression that comes mostly out of our culture, I believe. And these people need a voice. I see an entire generation of ex-Mormons and liberal Mormons and anti-Mormons who have been ostracized from their spouses, ostracized from their parents, completely separated from their communities. And, and, and these people aren't, haven't left the church because they're, they're sinners. They haven't left the church because they're weak. They haven't left the church uh, because they've been disobedient. They've left the church because they cared and they studied more deeply because they took what they were taught seriously and they wanted to be good teachers and they wanted to be uh, good doctrinarians and, and researchers. And so they wanted to learn more and they believed the things that they were taught. And when they discovered that things were so incredibly different than how they were taught, the truth mattered to them. And that's what led them outside the church. And to have such um, people of integrity, of such uh, desires for intellectual and, and, and historical accuracy, find at the other end of that uh, not a reward for their candor and their efforts and their integrity, but instead ostracization and alienation from, from their families uh, and, 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 and from their communities, and in some cases losses of jobs, is a, is, a, is a totally devastating thing for me to behold. And so everything I've done has been to give a voice to the voiceless, to, to bring to light truth and, and honesty and, and candor and facts and history that, that should be brought to light so that everyone knows and is on a level playing field with regard to the facts and so that uh, people's stories can be told. How can, how can the brethren at the end of the day argue with someone telling their story? As long as the people are being responsible, saying how they felt, saying what they experienced, the brethren can't you know, shut them down or, or criticize them because that's their experience. So by naming my, my blog and podcast Mormon Stories, by allowing people just to tell their stories, what I, what I feel like I've tried to do uh, you know, is the things that I just said. And, and, you know, and I, I know that there's a personal risk uh, at doing this uh, because, you know, the brethren sent really strong messages when they excommunicated the September 6th and, and, and when they denounced symposia. And so, you know, I often worry about what the consequences will be for what I've tried to do. Hopefully I'll stay insignificant enough to where I'll never be a blip on their radar. But, but, but uh, I can't not uh, be an advocate for these people and, and, and be an advocate for honesty and openness and truth. And I believe that good consequences will ultimately follow even if there's a lot of short-term pain in the meantime. Do you feel like you've been called to do this? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like to get superstitious and mystical, but I feel like everything I've experienced and, and all my experience and, and everything that, that I've lived through has culminated in this moment for me. And I, I, I hope that this isn't the only thing I do in my life. But But if all I was ever able to do was to let Buckley Jepson tell his story and to let Darren Smith and Darius Gray and Margaret Young tell their stories and to let Hiram tell his uh, and to let Todd Compton tell us about the overview of what really happened with polygamy and, and to show Greg Kearney 
who's a who's a devout Mason but also a devout Mormon, talk about how he's reconciled those two. Um, you know, if all I've able been able to do is is let those people tell their stories, and then through the impact of the hundreds of emails I've received, help people feel like they're not alone. Uh, I I will feel like my life will have contributed positively to my heritage and my culture. But I I do hope for bigger things as well. You know, going mm-hmm. forward.